Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. In January of 1936, a delegation of Soviet officials, including Joseph Stalin, attended a performance of Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk at the Bolshoi, and reportedly walked out before the final act even began. The opera was subsequently not performed again in the Soviet Union for almost 30 years. Find out more about this controversial opera on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. You're invited to the Guild's 88th Annual Luncheon, Shaping Stars, a celebration of the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program, occurring at 11.45 a.m. on November 10th and held at Cipriani 42nd Street. This event will be our first in-person luncheon in three years. Celebrate the impact of the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program with speeches and live performances from alumni including Stephanie Blythe, Michelle Bradley and Sandra Rabinovsky, and current young artist Jonah Hoskins. More info and tickets at www.metguild.org backslash luncheon 2022 or by phone at 212-769-7009. Don't miss this opportunity to celebrate the future of opera. Based on Nikolai Leskov's novella, Lady Macbeth of the Mitsens District, and seen as one of the most significant operas of the 20th century, Shostakovich's work returns to the Met this season, featuring sopranos Svetlana Sozdatlova and tenor Brandon Jovanovich as the deadly Katerina and her lover, Sergei. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and today's episode features lecturer Harlow Robinson as he explores the story of adultery and murder. This is um, an amazing opera, one of the great operas of the 20th century, which has an important history musically, politically, culturally. And um, it seems very appropriate to be uh, seeing this opera right now, because it's really uh, an opera about uh, the resistance to oppression. And uh, the, the character of Katerina representing following her, free, her freedom in a very repressive society. And of course, it ends up in Siberia, uh, where prisoners are sent. Uh, and this seems, uh, unfortunately, very familiar at the, at the present time with what is going on in Russia. And the, the conductor actually has pointed out this relevance of this opera at this, uh, at this particular moment. And you know, it's interesting. Um, I also do lecturing and writing for the Boston Symphony. And they have been recording the entire cycle of all of Shostakovich's symphonies for Deutsche Grammophon, and they're just about done now. And actually, the last one they're doing, they're doing the last two this season, number three and number 13. And um, they premiered number three at Tanglewood in the summer. And there were some people who were unhappy that uh, Shostakovich was on the program. You know, this idea that why, why, do you, why are you bothering with this Soviet composer? Uh, you know, who was a lackey of the Soviet state. Well, of course, the reality of Shostakovich is so much more complicated than that. And in fact, this opera in particular, as its history shows, and I will tell you more about that in a moment, represents, you know, Shostakovich's 
his inner dissidents, um, I like to call him the Hamlet of Soviet music. Uh, you know, he was very tortured about his place in, in Soviet music and how official he should be. And his music always has a, a double edge to it and, of course, can be interpreted in many different ways. But um, this opera in particular, which got him into so much trouble, after all, because of its content, and, and uh, which was unpalatable, particularly to Joseph Stalin and to those who were controlling Soviet culture at a really important turning point in the history of Soviet culture, uh, the late 1930s, 1935-36. So I thought I would start, actually, with um, uh, some uh, sort of historical background about where this opera fits into Soviet culture and to the history of Soviet music. What was Soviet culture in 1932? By that time, uh, Stalin had been in power for four years. He came to power in 1928. And uh, you know, only gradually did he assert his control over the realm of the arts. Uh, that really didn't happen until around uh, the mid-1930s. And if you know Shostakovich's early music, you know, it's quite wild stuff. <laughs> But you know, it was a very experimental period in Soviet culture, the late 20s and very early 30s. And that's when Shostakovich, after all, was a very young person. You know, he was born in 1906. So even when he wrote Lady Macbeth of Mitsiensk, he was not even 30 years old yet. You know, he had his first symphony he wrote when he was a teenager, which became an international sensation. And his early music is very theatrical, very uh, adventurous. Uh, not necessarily tonal, um, and you know he goes through all kinds of phases, of course, in his very long career, which extended until 1975. So Soviet culture in 1932, this was when actually uh, Stalin and his uh, cultural ministers started to make official statements about what Soviet artists should be doing. Uh, 1932, the Communist Party Resolution on the Reconstruction of Literary and Artistic Organizations. And this was the beginning of regimentation of Soviet culture and the, uh, for the formation of artistic unions uh, to which all Soviet artists were forced to belong. They had to be members of these unions. If they were not members of these unions, they were not considered to be um, artists. Um, all Soviet cultural workers were organized into unions, including the Union of Soviet Composers. And this union controlled all performance and publication, admitted only elite composers and musicologists, and maintained a special apartment houses and resorts for members. Actually, that included Shostakovich, who had a very nice apartment by Soviet standards right near Red Square. And the result was to strictly regulate Soviet musical output and encouraged conservatism and accessibility, especially to the largest possible audience. Western music, at the same time, became regarded with suspicion as a product of a decadent society. And especially, for example, uh, serialism, Schoenberg, Webern, the, new, the Viennese school, that was absolutely forbidden in Soviet music, beginning in the 1930s, really until after the death of Stalin into the 1950s, and then actually Sostakovich himself started using some serialist techniques in some of his music, especially his later quartets and his later symphonies. And this is also the era when socialist realism was formulated. Socialist realism was the official doctrine of Soviet culture. And it first was uh, applied particularly in literature. The first Congress of Soviet Writers in 1934, Maxim Gorky, the leading Soviet writer at the time, founded this new doctrine of Soviet culture as socialist realism. And this, the key concepts were assured loyalty to the party, partinost, party-mindedness, because, of course, the Communist Party was the controlling party, the only party. Idienost, idea or ideological content. Klasovost, class content, and pravdivost, truthfulness. These were the concepts that all Soviet artists were supposed to be following. The main attention of the Soviet composer must be directed towards the victorious progressive principles of reality, towards all that is heroic, bright, and beautiful. <laughs> okay, Lady Macbeth of Mitsiensk, Shostakovich became writing, began writing this opera in 1930, when he was 
24. Uh, he intended it to be the first in a tetralogy on the situation of Russian women throughout history. He thought, he joked that it would be the Soviet ring of the Nibelung. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, because of what happened to him with Lady Macbeth, he never did this. And in fact, the really tragic result of what happened to Lady Macbeth for Shostakovich is that he never wrote any more operas at all after Lady Macbeth and the Sands. He was so burned by the experience. Also, this happened to him with the ballets he was writing at the time, which were similarly censored and banned from the stage, as I'll tell you about. But Lady Macbeth was the only opera he completed uh, because of the scandal that erupted. And um, one of the uh, very finest uh, historians of Soviet music, Boris Schwartz, he has a big book on the history of Soviet music. He calls it the first clear demonstration of what communist totalitarianism in art meant, the, uh, the suppression of Lady Macbeth. Now sources, the source of the um, story is from Nikolai Liskov. Liskov is a writer that uh, people don't really know so much outside Russia. I mean, we know, of course, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. He was pretty much their contemporary. But he's, uh, he's very well known in Russia, but not so much outside. Um, he wrote about Russian provincial life, and especially about merchants, which is the milieu of Lady Macbeth the Messiensk, the milieu of actually rather wealthy merchants, but living in the provinces far away from Moscow and uh, Petersburg, with a dense, folksy, and highly colloquial language. And it's quite difficult to translate into English. I think that's one of the reasons that Liskov has never been as well known. This uh, story, it's actually a novella, about 50 pages long, was completed 1855. Powerful story of sexual passion and crime. Uh, and it's the heroine is a young merchant's wife named Katerina. Her um, peasant or lover, Sergei, together they murder her father-in-law, her husband, and a distant relative. That Shostakovich eliminated the murder of the distant relative. <laughs> Uh, because actually he said, you know, you can't have child murder in an opera. It just won't work. Uh, but in the story, they actually murder three people. And they're discovered and sent to uh, exile in Siberia. And there, Katerina kills a young woman and herself in rage over Sergei's infidelity because he starts an affair with one of the other prisoners. <laughs> the character of Katerina is very interesting. In the opera, as opposed to the story, she becomes a much more sympathetic character. In the story, she, we don't really sympathize with her. She's, she's a really a Lady Macbeth, a character, obviously, from the Shakespearean uh, model. And you know, Shakespeare was incredibly um, well-known and loved in, in Russia. And many Russian writers responded to Shakespeare in various ways. Turgenev, another writer of this same period, wrote several stories. He has one about of the King Lear of the Shidlovsky district, and uh, he loved the character of Hamlet. So anyway, Shakespeare was, uh, and of course later on, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. Shostakovich himself wrote music for films of King Lear and Hamlet later in his life. So Katerina, she is represented as the victim of the repressive and brutal circumstances in Shostakovich's opera, in which she's forced to live. She's much younger than her tyrannical and unaffectionate husband, Zinovi, with whom she lives in a loveless, arranged marriage. Boris is her father-in-law. What Shostakovich said about her, Katerina Ismailova is an energetic, talented, beautiful woman who perishes in the gloomy and cruel family milieu, the old Russian of serf owners and merchants. And this is still the story written in 1865. Remember, serfdom was abolished in, in, the, in Russia in 1861. Sergei is not a serf. He's a, a free, free worker, but still kind of a peasant class, or uh, maybe a slightly above peasant class. Part of my task was to justify Katerina Lvovna. By any means possible, so she made a positive impression on both listeners and spectators. And that's definitely what we get in the opera, which is very different from the story. And um, he says this, I chose the subject because classical Russian literature has so far been little used in Soviet uh, opera. And that's, uh, that's true. Of course, later on, Prokofiev would do uh, War and Peace uh, from Tolstoy. Not many people tried to do Dostoevsky. I think 
There were composers who did Dostoevsky operas, but not in Russia. Uh, Liskov's novel was very expressive, and he was particularly fond of, of Liskov. And the depiction of a very Russian milieu, not Moscow, not Petersburg, right? But something um, much more sort of authentically Russian in a certain way. And this is important. He called it a tragic, satirical opera. And you'll notice, especially there are some scenes, especially the scene in the police station uh, that in Act 3, where the police and the authorities of, of Russian, the Russian government are portrayed in a very satirical way. And, but Katarina is more of a tragic figure. And you know, before Lady Macbeth and Sense, Shostakovich was known much more for satire. And of course, his opera, The Nose, is really kind of just a crazy satire, uh, if you know the story by Gogol. The opera doesn't also imitate traditional operas, constructed around separate numbers. And this is important. The orchestra plays a role no less important than the soloists and chorus. And you know, it's, it's sad, of course, tragic in a way that Shostakovich never wrote any more operas after Lady Macbeth and Mitzians. But I would say that he put his operatic passion into his symphonies. And if you know his symphonies, especially the later ones, many of them have vocal. Uh, Bobby Yar, the 13th symphony, is very operatic in a way. And number 14, which is actually a song cycle. So we actually, what he did, I think, uh, because he was afraid of writing opera after the experience he had with Lady Macbeth. Uh, so Katerina Sergei, her, her lover, her love for him is the only a joy in her gloomy life. But Sergei is not a heroic character at all. He's, he's a user. Uh, he sees Katarina as uh, a kind of an easy target, a way for him to rise socially. And they become you know, the new kind of owners of the whole uh, mill where they, uh, where they uh, live. Uh, so he sees her as a, um, uh, some, something to get him somewhere. Uh, he's a self-interested person. Uh, and you'll see that, you'll hear that in his music too. It's uh, not heroic music. Um, and uh, so he, she has also those, the music for the opera though, although he says it's not traditional opera, there are some arias, especially for Katarina, her folk laments. There are ensembles, there are wonderful choruses. And if you do know the language of the musical language of the nose, this is much, very, much different. It is more traditionally operatic than the music of the nose. And the graphic portrayal of Sergei's seduction of Katerina is what enraged Stalin when he came to see the opera in 1936. And this is the, this is the scene that uh, everybody uh, that is the most infamous in this opera. And actually, let me, let's see that now, Petersburg. And this is what happens when Sergei and Katerina uh, come together. Her husband has gone off on a business trip, and so she's by herself. She's sexually unfulfilled with her husband, Zino, um, Zinovi, who's sort of not interested in her and kind of a you know, cold fish. And Sergei takes advantage of this situation. And notice how it's musically really a depiction of sexual intercourse in music. <laughs> and Sergei is a tenor. He sort of tries to resist him. Just 
So Lady Macbeth, the opera was very popular. This is what's so interesting and is sometimes forgotten. It was first produced in early 1934. In fact, it had two very major productions, one in Moscow and one in um, Leningrad at the ma major opera theaters. Hugely popular, had something like 100, oh, there, yeah, performed 83 times in Leningrad, 97 in Moscow, and also abroad. It was actually done in Cleveland uh, and brought to New York around this same time. Because by that time, Shostakovich was already internationally known because of his first symphony, particularly, and other, other works. So he was already um, pretty well known uh, all around the world. But Stalin comes to a performance at the Bolshoi in early 1936 and was outraged by its raw sensuality and dark message. And especially by that scene we just saw, <laughs> the very explicit graphic representation of intercourse and, af and its aftermath. Um, and uh, just a few days later, the opera was attacked in a very famous article, Medical Muddle Instead of Music, Sumbur Zmiesta Muziki, in the official communist newspaper, Pravda. And it was called Coarse, Primitive, and Vulgar, a deliberately dissonant, confused of sound was removed from the repertoire immediately in all Soviet theaters for the next 27 years. And just after this, if you know something about Soviet history, is when the purges really began, when uh, all sorts of different artists and intellectuals who were perceived as being in, uh, uh, insufficiently loyal to the Soviet regime, when they were arrested, brought to trial, either executed or sent into exile in Siberia. This included a lot of very famous poets like Mandelstam and, and others, and even some composers, as a matter of fact. And so um, suddenly Shostakovich went from being the golden boy of Soviet music to the whipping boy. And I mean, this was an absolutely terrible time to be an artist of his stature in the Soviet Union. He really literally feared for his life. Many of his close friends were being arrested uh, and sent to uh, prison or executed. One of them, in, in fact, was the um, uh, director, stage director Meyerhold, uh, who was uh, a good friend of Shostakovich. He was arrested and executed. And so Shostakovich really had good reason to fear for his very, for his very life. And um, the opera was still continued to be done abroad, but even, even there, less so. So this was, here's uh, Shostakovich. He was not even yet 30. So his life had been completely turned upside down. And actually, what did he do? Uh, he actually wrote the uh, Symphony Number no. 5, probably the most often performed of any of Shostakovich's works. So he did manage to resurrect himself. The Fifth Symphony is in many ways more simple, more classical than the kind of music that he had been writing. And it was, the finale has always been, there's always been question about the finale, whether it's really intended to be a positive affirmation of, of Soviet might and patriotism, or is it actually snubbing his nose? And this is one of the questions you know, that is always asked about Shostakovich. You know, is it ironic? Is it, is, it, uh, is it really positive, or is it something else? Is, is there a subtext? This is what uh, is always so fascinating about Shostakovich. So that's the background to what happened with this, with this opera. And now let me just say a little bit more about, go through it a little bit more, and give you some different examples of, of the music and uh, what's going on in the plot. When he started this, Shostakovich said, why did I choose this particular subject for an opera? Uh, and uh, he wrote this in a note to the libretto of his new opera. He was probably anticipating the reaction of some members of the world premiere. Uh, they might well wonder why a world-famous composer would decide to devote his time and energy to the dark and brutal tale of Katerina Ismailova, a provincial Russian merchant's wife who murders Four people, including herself, remember, at the end she commits suicide, along with dragging another woman into the Volga River as they cross it on their way to Siberia, off the barge that's transporting them uh, across. Out of lusty passion for the sexy young overseer, Sergei, especially in the 
artificially optimistic and cheerful world of Soviet communist culture, where operas were supposed to have happy, uplifting endings of the boy meets tractor variety. Such a lurid subject was a striking and even shocking departure. First of all, I chose it, he said, because classical Russian literature has so far been very little used in Soviet opera. And I chose it because of the uh, social and rich dramatic content of the Liskov story. In its truthful and tragic depiction of the fate of a talented, intelligent, and exceptional woman who perishes in the nightmarish conditions of pre-revolutionary Russia, this story has few rivals. Now, something else that's really important about this opera is the role of the, of the orchestra, as I pointed out. And um, there's a number of interludes, uh, which are a symphonic. Actually, also, he excerpted later as a kind of suite of the symphonic interludes uh, in the opera. And one example is the interlude between scenes one and two. And they're not actually leitmotifs. They're really creations of an atmosphere, I would say more than that. But the orchestra is very aggressive in, in this opera. It, it's not an accompanist. It's a, an active agent. So let's listen to that interlude between scenes one and two. And you know, if you, you if you try to think of what were his models, Shostakovich, uh, when he started writing this, well, he loved Wozzeck. Uh, that was one of his favorite operas. And actually, Bear, Wozzeck was quite popular in Soviet Russia in the late 1920s. Later on, it would never it was banned basically because it's another opera, of course, about murder and obsession uh, uh, and. Uh, it was, um, he was very taken with Wozzeck. And it may have been one of the things he had in mind when he wrote his opera and, why, and also another one where the orchestra is very important. And in fact, the opera uh, has five of these symphonic interludes. And they not only create the appropriate atmosphere, but develop musical themes more fully. And so the orchestra is really a very important factor in the opera. Uh, and it comments upon the action. Uh, in a satirical or tragic way. And he said, as he said, uh, I mentioned before, does not, the opera does not imitate traditional operas constructed around separate numbers. I mean, I think he was thinking about Verdi, or, uh, for example, or, or Belcanto, for example, where the orchestra is much less important. The symphonic development extends from the first to the last note. The musical flow goes on without a pause, breaking off only at the end of each act and resuming in the following one, progressing not in little fragments, but developing according to large symphonic plans. The musical interludes continue and develop preceding musical ideas and help to characterize the events on stage. The orchestra doesn't just accompany, but plays a role no less important, perhaps even more important, than the soloist and the chorus. And now, let's hear Katerina's first kind of aria. This is a beautiful little lament that she sings. 
uh, in uh, Act One, which uh, this is before all the action unfolds, and she's basically lamenting her loneliness, how she's you know in this unhappy marriage, nobody pays any attention to her. I mean, basically, this was an arranged marriage. You know, she was uh, given to this uh, uh, Zinovi. There was no love between them. It was simply an arranged marriage. And uh, her father-in-law, Boris, is very brutal towards her, as is just about everybody else in the environment. And she's sort of neglected, left alone. Uh, she's much younger uh, than her husband. She maybe was even a teenager, I think, Katerina here, maybe uh, 18 or 19. So this is this wonderful opening lament that she sings. This, by the way, is Galina Vishnevskaya, who was very famous in the role of, of Katerina. And this is a version with uh, Rostropovich conducting the Le London Philharmonic. So that's almost an aria, a little set piece. And what she's actually singing, she says, I am a merchant's wife, the wife of the eminent merchant Zinovi Borisevich Ismailov. The ant carries a piece of straw, the cow gives milk, the farm workers pour the grain, but I alone have nothing to do. I alone grieve, to me alone, the merchant's wife, is life unkind. And of course, she also doesn't have any, uh, she doesn't have any children, so she doesn't have that as solace. And we get the feeling that her, you know, her sex life with Zinovi is either non-existent or very unsatisfying. But so Katarina is interrupted in these wonderful musical musings by her father-in-law, Boris Timofeyevich, and he's a bass baritone. Both of her boyfriends, Sergei, uh, and her, 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 uh, her boyfriend, Sergei, and her husband, uh, Zinovi, are both tenors, but Boris, her father-in-law, is a bass baritone. And uh, significantly, the first and last words of his first appearance on stage, the father-in-law, uh, foreshadow his death at the hands of Katenina. He wants to know if there will be mushrooms to eat today. And of course, this is very Russian, right? <laughs> Any of you who know Russian cuisine, you know, mushrooms are absolutely at the center, <laughs> marinated mushrooms in particular. So he asks, uh, will there be mushrooms to eat today? And later, as he exits, he warns Katerina to prepare poison for the rats who are eating the flower. Okay, mushroom poison. <laughs> uh, Shostakovich called Boris Timofeyevich a typical old-fashioned merchant from the days of Russian serfdom. His most basic character trait is an inhuman cruelty. His role is sung by a character baritone, not a lyrical baritone. And the music portrays what his change, the change of Boris from one psychological state to another without modulations. His is the sort of nature which does not experience deep spiritual change. So this is what Shostakovich tried to show in the music. In sharp contrast to Katerina, Boris sings in short and abrupt phrases devoid of melody. His musical style expresses his spiritual deficiency and blustering despotism. And in this opening scene, Boris criticizes Katerina for singing and upbraids her for being childless. Uh, because that's actually the only, her only function, right? Is supposed to be to bear children that uh, will carry on the legacy. 
And when Katerina tries to shift the blame to her husband, Zinovi, he cannot put a child in my womb, she says. But he calls her a, quote, cold fish and even accuses her of wanting to get her claws into some fine young fellow and have fun with him. So from the very outset, she's being pushed into this relationship that, she, uh, that happens with Sergei, even though, as we saw, the initial relationship between them, is it a rape? Is it not? You know, what is it? Date rape? It's not, but it's, um, you know, it's something between rape, but she's so um, uh, unhappy and alone that she sort of welcomes the advances. So from the very beginning in the tradition of classical tragedy, Katenia is being pushed inexorably towards the terrible crimes she will commit by the evil people who control her life, especially Baris Timofeev. Where Katerina is all beauty and lyricism, Baris is all nastiness and brute force. From the outset, the main conflict is between these two forces of light and dark, creative freedom, and mindless authority. And here, let's hear Baris singing. And you can see what I mean, I think. This sort of heavy, right? <laughs> Will there be mushrooms? <laughs> is what she's responding to him. And you can hear the orchestra here is so important, right, in characterizing Buddy. It's this heavy, sarcastic kind of um, phrasing. So the crucial elements of the plot develop quite quickly after this. The Novi, her husband, enters. And immediately he's told that he has to go off to check on a dam that's burst on a distant part of the family property. Baris lashes out at the assembled servants and workers because they are expressing insufficient grief over the departure of Zinovi. <laughs> and in response, the chorus launches into a strained parody of a traditional folk lament sung upon parting from a loved one. Why, oh, why are you leaving us, O oh master? To who, oh, to whom are you abandoning us, O oh master? <laughs> Similarly ironic adaptations of conventional folk melodies appear throughout the opera. The odd intervals and violently marked rhythms subvert the apparent emotional message. And if you know um, uh, Stravinsky's uh, Les Nos, uh, there's uh, examples of that kind of uh, lament there, you know, where uh, it's part of the marriage ritual. These ritualistic uh, laments, actually in Russian they're called plach. Yeah. Uh, Boris now turns his attention to the hapless son Zinovi. And Shostakovich said this of him, Zinovi is a merchant terrorized by his father, the pitiful and spineless black sheep in the family of a powerful serf owner. Not having the strength to stand up to the despotic force of his father, he tries to imitate him in every way and try to be just as despotic in his relationship to Katerina and to all others below him on the social ladder. The role is given to a high tenor. In characterizing him, I used a method I would call Musical denunciation. 
Uh, and what this means in practice is that Shostakovich often undercuts Zinovi's singing with ironic, even mocking commentary from the orchestra. This occurs during his very first appearance when he's urged by Boris to extract an oath from Katerina that she will be faithful in his absence. So he's already saying, you're not going to be faithful to me. <laughs> he keeps on getting these messages, right? Zinovi is unwilling to obey at first, uh, but and starts to sing a conventional goodbye in a high register when he is rudely interrupted by the brass and by his father, demanding an oath from Katerina. He starts, uh, the father says, Kliatvu, Kliatvu. You have to get a, um, an oath from her. And this musical gesture completely destroys Zinovi's credibility and sincerity. His utter lack of backbone is emphasized as the scene and progresses, and he fails to protect his wife. And even as Zinovi is taking his leave, he's introducing Sergei, the man who will steal his wife, to his father-in-law as the new uh, worker he's just hired. And in scene two of act one, Sergei takes center stage. Ser uh, Shostakovich didn't view Sergei as a hero, as I had said earlier, and uh, wrote his music accordingly. Uh, Sergei is also a tenor. Uh, but not a romantic hero. And Sergei's playful, sexually confident personality is immediately established in scene two when he is the ringleader of a group of workers who torment the other worker, Aksinia, a soprano, one of the domestic servants. They put her in a barrel, they taunt, and they grope her, and the words they sing, what tits she has, what great tits, are profane and crude. And the part of Sergei here is actually sung by Nikolai Geda. And here Shostakovich diverges, uh, diverges significantly from the original Liskov story. She gives, he gives Katerina a highly editorial aria about how women have always been slighted by men and never received sufficient credit for their bravery and sacrifice, both in peace and war. This is something that was not in the original. But Katerina is at the same time taken with the handsome and arrogant newcomer. Uh, so much so, in fact, that she agrees to his proposal for an arm wrestling match uh, that eventually finds her on the ground underneath him. Uh, the scene is loaded with sexual tension. And just at that moment, her father-in-law, Boris, enters and threatens to tell Katerina's husband what she's doing while he is away. The scene ends as Boris commands her to fry up some mushrooms for him to eat. And the next scene is um, uh, when she's, she's raped, uh, but actually it begins with a beautiful uh, aria, actually, um, where she's um, once again sort of expressing her, her uh, longing and loneliness. She's, she sings, the foal pursues the filly, the tomcat wants his female, the dove hastens to his mate, only to me does no one hurry. So she's sexually uh, willing, but deprived. And so it leads into the rape scene. And let's hear this.
So Katerina gets the most lyrical moments. And so then uh, what follows is uh, her interaction with, with Sergei. Uh, he, he comes and uh, uh, they actually, and they end up um, uh, murdering her, her father-in-law. Uh, actually, what happens is he discovers them at the end after, after they've had their um, sexual act. And Boris discovers them and she's, uh, you know, he threatens them. And uh, uh, Katenina is already in love with Sergei. Uh, the experience of passionate lovemaking has transformed her. I have no husband, I have only you. She sings mournfully to Sergei. And suddenly the booming bass of Boris Timofeyevich is heard off stage inquiring if Katerina is asleep. Um, but even his voice doesn't frighten her anymore. She allows Sergei to stay uh, with her uh, in the bedroom as the act one curtain falls. Um, but then uh, Boris sees Sergei climbing down from Katerina's window and uh, he realizes what has happened. And um, so uh, they, uh, um, Boris calls Katerina to the window to witness the beating uh, of um, a uh, of Sergei, uh, he starts to beat Sergei, and the scene is described once again musically by Shostakovich with almost unbearably graphic vividness. The blows raining down on Sergei's back serve as the rhythmic basis of, um, as it were, through Katerina's horrified ears, and it's a very kind of expressionistic music here. And Katerina wastes no time in taking advantage of Boris's desire for a little snack. <laughs> he still wants those mushrooms. So she, this is the moment where she puts the poison in the mushrooms and, and, and gives them to her. And, uh, before she, and he suddenly is dying. And when he asks why he could be dying, she says to him, lots of people die after eating mushrooms at night. <laughs> Sounds like a Russian proverb. Uh, and she goes off to summon the priest to administer the last rites to her, uh, her father-in-law and then frees Sergei because Boris has, has locked him away to, pun to punish him. And then um, the ghost of Boris appears to her. This seems very Shakespearean, actually. Uh, so now she's with Sergei. The father-in-law's gone. Zinobi's still off examining the dam and the distant part of the property. So they're, they're just able to... Um, be together and uh, uh, not be uh, fearful. But then uh, Zinovi uh, returns, as we'll see. But before that, she has this terrible dream of the, the ghost of Boris, because she feels guilt over what she's done. And uh, the ghost of Boris uh, appears to her. And this is what that scene is like. Sergei comforts her, and then they hear a sound. And what is it? It's Zinovi returning. <laughs> because he's been told, he's been tipped off that something's going on between his wife and Sergei. So he returns in the middle of the night, and uh, they strangle him. <laughs> uh, he tries to fight with Sergei, and they take a kerchief and wrap it around his neck and, and strangle him. So they drag and they drag his uh, body down to the cellar where they uh, bury it in a shallow grave. Um, Katerina is now more bold than ever that she's rid of her hated husband, demands a kiss, and says to Sergei, now you are my husband. And that's the end of Act 2. There are four acts altogether. And at, in Act 3, uh, this is the one that diverges the most from uh, Liskov. Uh, this is where they um, are married. and. Uh, we um, see them about to celebrate this, this marriage, and um, then this shabby peasant, is what he's called, finds the grave by mistake. He goes down to the cellar, 
He's looking for uh, something to drink, actually. <laughs> and instead, he discovers the, uh, the grave of, of uh, Zinovich. And so he comes up and starts yelling about it. And then we have a weird scene in the police station um, where this is the most satirical scene in the opera, as I mentioned earlier, where we see these policemen who are being summoned by this shabby peasant. You know, look, I found this body. This is something terrible. And the police don't like um, uh, the Ismailovs already because they weren't invited to the wedding. <laughs> and so, uh, and this is a very satirical scene, denunciation of sort of the authority of all kinds, really. And I think it's another scene that must have very much offended Stalin uh, because it's really a denunciation of any kind of authority. And so uh, they come and they discover, they discover the bodies. Uh, they, uh, at the end of Act 3. So they're now the end of Act Four, which is very short, is um, set in Siberia. As you know, time has passed. They've been convicted, and, um, sentenced to uh, exile in the Gulag, <laughs> and uh, they have to walk there. That's what was done. They actually walked all the way to Siberia through winter, whatever. And so we see the convoy of prisoners. That's what's happening in the last act. Um, Katenina has another wonderful little aria. Let's just hear a little bit of that, expressing her sorrow and grief over what's happened. She's still in love with Sergei. After this very dramatic moment of complete silence, the full orchestra enters at full volume with another bone-chilling sequence running up and down between D and B flat, creating the effect of a terrible cold wind. And Katerina sings yet another, the third of her folk-like lament, the words, in the forest there is a grove, it is a lake, it's round and very deep, the water is black, it's black, black, like my conscience. So she's racked by guilt, and this is one of the reasons that we're sympathetic to Katerina, as I mentioned at the beginning. She does express remorse and guilt over what she's done, and after all, at the end of Act 3, she's ready to confess, this great confession scene. And I'll just briefly mention that if you know the opera by Janacek, Katya Kabanova, um, very similar, actually, uh, in, in uh, what happens. Remember, there she engages in infidelity also, Katya Kabanova and then confesses, and, uh, and she jumps into the Volga, right? Also, that's a, from a play by Ostrovsky, uh, Graza, the thunderstorm. And it's very close in, in characterization and plot to this, uh, and was a very uh, celebrated play in Russia around the, same, around the same time. And so the denouement, they're marching to Siberia, this horrible uh, fate that's uh, come to them. Sergei has moved on. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, 
He's interested in another convict named Sonetka, uh, and they have a little scene together, uh, and he's flirting with her. And she says, oh, you know, I'd really love a, a nice pair of socks. My feet are so cold. And so he goes to Katerina and, and says, oh, will you let me have your socks? My feet are cold. Uh, and she, Katerina, thinks that they're for Sergei, and she gives them to him. Then she later, shortly after, sees them on Sonetka's feet. And Sonetka laughs at her and makes fun of her. Oh, you're so stupid, you know? Who do you think you are, Katerina Lvovna? Anyhow, you're just a nobody, and you're just like all of us. We're just all in this together. And this is when Katerina simply goes crazy. Uh, and as they're crossing the Volga on a barge, uh, she drags her into uh, the water with her, and they both drown. And Liskov says it was like one large fish devouring another, is how he describes it in the story. And then uh, we have this amazing chorus of the convicts at the very end. And this is what I wanted to uh, leave you with, this chorus of the convicts at the end, and uh, where they're expressing their great grief um, over the miles crawl by, one by one, we're, we're doomed, this is our, our fate. And you know, this is another, I mean, also to hear this chorus in Stalin's Russia in 1936, when people were being sent to Siberia, you know, they went by train usually, but they didn't have to walk, but still uh, the same fate. Uh, obviously, this would have been very uncomfortable for, uh, for Stalin and Soviet officials also to, to look at. So finally, Katerina dies the way she has lived, passionately and proudly. A woman of exceptional qualities finally crushed by the oppressive and petty world that surrounds her. Like Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, she has, quote, too much of something, as Tolstoy said of Anna Karenina. And despite her terrible crimes, retains her spiritual purity to the end. And Galina Vishnevskaya, who was one of the greatest interpreters of this role of Katerina Ismailova, has expressed the essence of her work well in her wonderful autobiography. If you want to read um, a great work about the history of Soviet music, uh, read Galina Vishnevskaya's uh, memoirs called just Galina. She said, and she knew Shostakovich very, very well. Shostakovich, a man deeply repelled by any and all violence, not only had not condemned Katerina for the murder she committed, but with all the intensity of temperament, his temperament, empathized with her. Katerina possesses all the beauty of feeling that he himself is capable of, and we become infected with his love for her. Thank you. <laughs> that was Guild lecturer Harlow Robinson discussing one of Shostakovich's most controversial works, Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening. <laughs>